Well, I wanted to talk about the gays, and you started talking about who the engineer is. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 39 of the Glenn Butler Podcast, Our Spectacular, where we are finally, at long last, uh, getting around to our discussion of Star Trek Discovery Season 1. I, of course, cannot do that without my brother, Mr. Scott Butler. Hello, Scott. Hello. Now, Scott, when it comes to Star Trek Discovery, is it possible that we two, you and I, have grown so old and so inflexible that we've outlived our usefulness, would that constitute an opening question? I think it would constitute two opening questions. One of them asking about the other. That's very meta. I I suppose it is. Maybe you've grown too old and inflexible. I plan to live forever. Yes, I, of course, am a predator. You are stalking me. And I will make the kill. (laughs) Maybe I should stop recording. (laughs) So when it comes to Discovery, I think we've had pretty similar reactions. Although not at the same time, which is interesting. I was a much bigger fan of this show when we first watched it. You were pretty down on it, right from the initial run. Well, if we go back to our previous show, when we talked about the first two episodes, I was very cautiously optimistic. But optimistic nonetheless. And then, as the season wore on, I got a little less optimistic, because it just seemed to be kind of in a mode of television I don't vibe with as much as maybe I might. This is very, very much Star Trek made for our current moment of prestige TV, for better or for worse. Well, we'll get there. When it first ran, I liked it a lot more than you did. It wasn't perfect, it wasn't great, but I thought it was a solid 5 or 6 out of 10. I generally enjoyed it for what it was. Like I said, it had its drawbacks, but I generally thought it was pretty good. Rewatching it so that it's fresh in our mind for this podcast? Good lord, watching this show is a chore. Like, it's a trial! I thought we were going to knock this out in a weekend. We didn't watch more than three episodes in a day. Yeah, that part was a little, a little surprising. 
it's shocking how hard it was to watch this show. This, you say it's made for this moment in television. This show is not made for streaming platform because this show is like the opposite of bingeable. You cannot sit down and binge this show. You just you you can't do that. I mean, I I understand the reason they didn't post it all at once like Netflix does, and the reason they doled it out one a week is because they wanted to have subscribers on their CBS streaming platform for six months rather than for like a week to watch it all, but. This show, you can't sit down and binge on this show. It just doesn't work that way. It's it's It was a trial to get through this show in a week. Well, the reason I say it's, it's Star Trek made for the prestige TV moment is one of the reasons why I actually thought it is shockingly unbingeable, and that's the preponderance of extreme plot twists. Yes, there is that. It's sort of everything is turned up to 11. Yeah. And everything is done as like a shocking swerve. There's a lot in common between really bad normal television writing and really bad wrestling book. Where they just have like a whole bunch of shocking swerves just for the sake of having a whole bunch of shocking swerves. And this show, right from the beginning, the like the edginess, the aggression between characters, the confrontationalness... The amount to which everybody hated each other for the first two or three episodes. I mean, the first two or three episodes after the first two episodes, cause, because, like I said in that other show, those were basically a prologue. Those yeah. were backstory. This show didn't start until episode three. I actually noted that when we started rewatching with episode one and the opening credits started. And I'm like, oh, look, it's a whole list of people who aren't going to show up until episode three. But... It's like everything is cranked to 11 to be as, like, edgy, as confrontational, as, like, antagonistic. And it's just... It's too much. And it doesn't feel Star Trek-y when they do that. It kind of feels like a reaction to the 90s Star Trek formula. They don't have to work with the Roddenberry rules about conflict between humans. They don't have to work with the restrictions on serialization and they don't have to work with some of the visual and makeup effects limitations, and so they go all out on all of those subjects. It's interesting that you mention that, and we're sort of bouncing all over the place right now, but... We're probably going to be, yeah. One of the things that I noted down is, like, this show, it feels both too long and drawn out, and also very rushed. Like, when you think about all the stuff they cram into one season, and it's not even a 26-episode season, it's a 15-episode season, they start the war, they have, like, the initial confrontation of the war, the war lasts for, what, a year and a half, two years? At least a year and a half. At least a year and a half, yeah, because they brigadoon their way through some of it. They brigadoon their way through, like, the vast majority of it, which is a problem we'll get to later. So they have the very beginning of the war... The entire war, right through to the armistice at the end, an entire Klingon war, and also the entire saga of the Mirror Universe. And also a Klingon infiltrator who is revealed as an infiltrator and then becomes the human again, and then his human love interest feels betrayed, but then she works her way toward a rapprochement with him and his new identity. And all of this is crammed into one season. 
there is a lot of plot. There is an extreme amount of plot And at the same time, it feels like nothing's happening. Like, that whole Mirror Universe bit feels so long. They're just in the Mirror Universe for an episode and nothing happens. Well, I was looking for that when we were re-watching the entire season. I think they're in the Mirror Universe for three or four episodes. And it feels too long, by at least half an episode. I was reflecting on this toward the end of the season, because right at the end of the season, it's like three episodes in a row. Like, one episode, Ash tries to kill Burnham, and it's like the next episode, they figure out he's a Klingon and then make him sort of human again. And then it's like the next episode where he and Burnham have that confrontation where she's like, you know, every time I see you, I see him and I feel your hands around my neck. And then the next episode, she's like, I can see you you in your eyes now. And that feels so rushed because they've got to cram it in before the end of their 15 episode season. That journey of her feelings toward this person would feel so much better if it had been able to be stretched out over five or six or seven or eight episodes. This whole story of an entire Klingon war in one season of television would feel so much more like an actual war. It would feel so much more epic. You would feel like in your gut. You would get that they're at war and they're desperate rather than just them saying we're at war and we're desperate. If that was able to be stretched out over more episodes, if they had time to show you the devastation of the war rather than only the like really important plot points of the season arc. And the solution to all of these problems is, of course, 90s Star Trek-style filler episodes. So that you have an episode with a story that's not related to their... Any of this, like, major shit going on, but, like, the B story is Burnham has feelings about Volk. Well, that's why, I mean, my favorite episode of the season, like, far and away, is the Harry Mudd time foolery episode. Because that pretty much is, you know, there's this A plot of the week going on, and very much the B plot is Burnham's feelings about Tyler and... Exactly. Uh, uh... And Stamets doing his thing, and, and, and you know, it allows the different, those, different characters reacting to the plot. It allows those other things to evolve naturally and slowly in the background. So that it's not like this episode we're at point A, and by the next episode we're at point B. Give it room to breathe so that it takes three or four episodes to get from point A to point B, so that it feels more natural rather than like rapid herky-jerky back and forth. Also, one of the things that I really liked about that Harry Mudd episode was that it's after the phase of the season where everyone hates each other, so they're all working together. Yeah, that was that was the best part of the show. After they stopped emphasizing how much everyone hates each other, and before they got sidetracked with the whole Mirror Universe Mishigas, that sort of sweet spot right in the middle there, that was really the best era of the show. And it was like the Harry Mudd episode, and maybe half an episode on either side of it. Should we talk about all of my problems with the Harry Mudd episode? Well, here's the problem with the Harry Mudd episode. Okay, what's your problem with the Harry Mudd episode? Please, please don't let it be just physics. I think that actor, Rain Robinson, or whatever his name is. Yes, Rain Robinson. I think he could play a really, really good Harry Mudd. If anybody had written a decent Harry Mudd for him to play. Harry Mudd 
is an opportunist. Harry Mudd is a thief. Harry Mudd is a flamboyant, charismatic con man. He, Harry Mudd is not a cold-blooded murderer. Harry Mudd is not someone who inflicts excruciating pain on someone for the joy of inflicting excruciating pain on the person. That's not what Harry Mudd was. Well, the, in, the, in the original episodes with Harry Mudd, he was much more fundamentally absurd. He was like Falstaff in space. He wasn't an intergalactic villain. He was just a petty criminal. Yeah. He was not, ooh, I get to murder you 156 times. I'm so glad to murder you 156 times! That well, That's not Harry Mudd. Well, you know, this, this, this whole show is grim and gritty. Ugh. You know, and people kill, and people face the realities of having killed, such as when you kill someone and it starts an intergalactic war. That's the thing with this show. I think this show has so many lost opportunities where things could have been really cool, but they deliberately didn't do them that way for the sake of their, like, edginess and their prestige television and their shocking swerves. There are times in this season, after the part where his main character trait was that he hated everyone and before the part where he was revealed to be an evil clone, I really liked Captain Lorca. Yeah, I never I never really warmed up to Captain Lorca, even on first watch, because he was so much the emblem of how dark and gritty this show wanted to be. We're at war, don't you realize we're at war? Yeah, but and, that sort, and that sort of stuff, I just think, is kind of stereotypical and hackneyed when it's in something in a modern setting, but... Having that character inserted into a Star Trek show felt out of place, and in retrospect, I guess he was supposed to feel out of place, but still, the, the, the priorities of, of the character as they were shown at that point, in terms of we're at war and, and, and all that grim, serious nature, really kind of put me off the character. Yeah, but when he wasn't doing that, I really enjoyed the character and Jason Isaac's performance. Jason Isaacs was when great. They, when they weren't doing the whole, you know, we're at war, and so you'll do what I tell you to do, because I'm trying to win the war. When they weren't doing that bullshit. Like, Captain Warka in the Harry Mudd episode. Yeah. It was great. Really, from right about that time. Because that was that sort of sweet spot between everyone hates each other in episode 2, 3, four, in episode like 3, 4, or into 5. I don't know, this thing happened so fast. I don't know what episode is which. But, like, starting with... After the part where, where they had to emphasize how much Lorca hated Stamets, and Stamets hated Lorca, and Stamets hated Burnham, and Stamets hated Tilly, and after that era of the show, when, like, Stamets got drunk on mycelium and became such a more enjoyable character, and Lorca sort of got toned down, and he still had the occasional we're at war scene, but when he wasn't doing one of those scenes, he was such a more enjoyable character... Right up until they go to the Mirror Universe. Like, right up until he's revealed as the Mirror Universe. And, like, watching it a second time, you can see the hints that he's the Mirror Universe. Oh, thing. yeah, there are so many. But when you don't see those hints, it seems so good when he's given that rousing speech about, you know, we're in an alien universe. 
these people aren't like us. They don't value diversity like we do. That they, they don't have the strength of Federation ideals like we do. That was so good back when I thought it was actually a Starfleet captain, and and, and Jason Isaacs was so good in the role when I thought he was actually playing a Starfleet captain. I'm disappointed we won't get to see more of Lorca without the whole we're at war thing dragging the character down, because I think it could have been a really awesome character. I'm I'm af- I'm afraid we will see more of Lorca. Um, how's that? Well, you know, on, on the internets, there's the whole find Prime Lorca movement. I would like to see Prime Lorca, because that I think that would be the character that I wanted Lorca to be, that I thought Lorca was for about three episodes there. And when they finally escaped the Mirror Universe, there was that shot of the one glowing spore that landed on Cadet Tilly's uniform. And that is... That's a whole thing that the producers think they're clever for seeding in there for whatever the hell it's going to be. They've had people brushing spores off their uniforms in every episode. Yeah, but that one was glowing. Like right in episode one slash three, the first thing you see Stamets do is brushing spores off his uniform. Yeah, but the one that landed on Tilly's shoulder was glowing green. They're all glowing! Well, most of them are glowing blue. Blue and purple. They're all bilighted. <laughs> well, gosh, you want to talk about that? What? I don't even know what we're transitioning to now. This is so scattershot so far. Well, if the spore drive is is bicolored, do you want to talk about Stamets and Culber? Stamets, I really loved Stamets once he got drunk on the spores. Yeah. And stopped being such a dick to everyone. He was such a fun character. And him and Culber were cool. They were some of the be- better characters on the show. He was a very fun character, and once he mellowed out a little, his interactions with Tilly I thought were great. Tilly's a great character. Yeah. The best characters on most Star Trek shows are the ones who get really excited about science. <laughs> I mean, how many episodes of, of Next Generation are totally carried by Geordi and Data getting excited about science? Or Jordy getting excited about science and Data doing a lot of science. <laughs> Most episodes of Next Generation are buoyed by Jordy doing a pencil roll under the engineering bulkhead door. True. Nobody did that in this show. It's so on Star Trek. Well, we didn't see the engineering core. Like, yeah, we... Where's the warp core of this ship? All we see is the mycelium room. Yeah, though the warp core was behind that uh, mycelium bay. It, w- it was like the warp core in Tos, where it's like a pattern on the wall that's forced perspective. <laughs> You can see it. You can see it in a couple episodes. I guess that's um, error appropriate. Sure, and of course, you never bothered meeting the chief engineer of the ship. I like, thought they said Stamets was the chief engineer. No, he's the astromycologist. Like, if the warp drive broke, he's not the one they call. No, but when Burnham was introduced to him in episode three, didn't Gorka name him as the chief engineer? Uh, no, I think he just told her to go to engineering. I'm almost certain they referred to him as the chief engineer. I don't recall that. Well, I haven't opened the page yet, but the blurb that you can see from the Google search results say, in that capacity, he served as the chief engineer of the USS Discovery in 2256. Well, that's just memory alpha. Yeah. Well... Lieutenant Commander Paul Stamets was a male human astromycologist and Starfleet officer who lived during the mid-23rd century. He became part of the team that discovered the mycelial network and helped develop the revolutionary spore drive propulsion system. 
In that capacity, he served as the chief engineer of the USS Discovery in 2256. And the episode cited for this information is Context is for Kings, which was episode 3. So anyway, one of the big things about this show, and one of the things that that they announced early-ish, and one of the things that they made a, a big deal of, was that finally there are gay people on Star Trek who are in a relationship and not, like, the subject of a morality tale episode. Except then they went ahead and killed one of them, so that was kind of a thing. Yeah, isn't that a thing? Like, a lot of shows are doing that. Isn't there, like, a hashtag, kill the gays or something like that? Bury your gays is the trope, officially. And it's, it's a whole thing. It's... A lot of people have a lot of feelings about it. I would... I probably shouldn't be making an argument because, you know, I'm a street dude. Are you now? I'm here, and so I'm going to make my argument. But, like, feel free to ignore my argument. Cool. I don't think this quite fits. Because isn't that about killing off the gay main characters on a show? Like, you've got six main characters, and you need to kill a main character because you're prestige television, and you need a shocking swerve. And 99% of the time, you just happen to pick the gay character to kill off for your shocking swerve. Or a person of color. I think this doesn't quite fit because they didn't kill Stamets. Stamets is the main character. Colber was just Stamets' boyfriend. And they didn't kill Stamets. Colber wasn't one of the main characters like Stamets or Lorca or Burnham or Saru or whatever. Colber was like a secondary character. And when a secondary character is the love interest of a main character, one of the things you do with that secondary character sometimes is fridge them. Okay. (laughs) Um. That's sort of the way I saw it. But again, I'm a straight dude, so feel free to ignore my entire opinion, if you like. See, my reaction to it was a little muted, not only because my reaction to most things is muted because of catastrophic depression, but also because I'm not someone who really yearns for representation in media the way that a lot of people do. I'm not judging that at all. And it's great when it happens, especially when it's good. But it's not something with deep emotional stakes, for me personally, the way it is for other people. I mean, there are people who were enraged when they wanted to kill someone to reinforce dramatically whatever they were doing and Culber was the one that they killed. There are people who were enraged, and, and right to be enraged in a lot of ways. Which is why Wilson Cruz and the writers and producers were very, very quick, despite their secretive ways on a lot of other things, to say, oh, he's coming back, he's coming back, we promise he's coming back. And then when he came back as the mycelium dream vision, they were very quick to say, no, he's coming back again. He's coming back for real. It's okay, he's coming back. How many dead characters are they bringing back? All of them, maybe? See, from a macro perspective, I totally understand that reaction, because it's part of a larger system where there's like a hundred other shows that are killing all of their gay characters as well. Exactly. That's why the trope is horrible and insulting. From the micro perspective, though, I totally understand the choice. We only know one medical officer. There's only one medical officer on the show whose name we know, that we've seen before, that we recognize on site. 
that we care about because one of our main characters cares about them. And so if Tyler is going to snap and kill the medical officer who's discovered his Klingon heritage, what other choice was there? What other medical officer could he have killed other than Culber? Name another medical officer on that ship. I mean, just because there aren't other characters as it was written who could have filled that role doesn't mean they couldn't have written the show differently. I suppose. Like I said, from the macro perspective, as part of a larger trend in film and television production, I understand the anger. But from the micro perspective, considering only this show and the context of what decision they made in this show, I think it makes a lot of sense. Like I said, if, you're, if you have a secondary character who is the love interest of a primary character, one of the things you sometimes do to that secondary character is kill them to cause pain and some sort of reaction out of your primary character. I suppose, but I mean, again, it, it's, it's a reaction that I completely understand. And as happens with a lot of things that the writers and producers and such will say about the show, I feel kind of patronized. <laughs> Wow. By by the by the whole attitude that you know, please don't have this reaction against the show that we wrote. We're we're gonna fix it. It's gonna be okay. We promise. Well, that's like like maybe write a show you don't have to apologize for. Well, maybe audiences could just watch a fucking show and not be outraged about every fucking thing. Oh come on! Lynch mob calling for Kathleen Kennedy to be burned at the stake. Maybe you could just enjoy a piece of media and not hate every creative decision that every creator of media makes. Not all negative reactions to writing decisions are equal. <laughs> yes, but I'm saying there's a reason why as soon as somebody comes out with a piece of media, they immediately try to stem the torrent of outrage on the internet. Because, like, if they have a character open the door with their left hand instead of their right hand, there will be a torrent of outrage on the internet. And so it sort of gets lost. I mean, you've heard the story of the boy who cries wolf, right? If there's, like, death threats over, you know, meaningless bullshit, there's death threats because Luke wasn't historic enough. There's death threats because there's a black woman as the main star of a Star Trek show. There's death threats because the gay characters exist in the first place. It all sort of becomes one mass of noise coming from the internet, and so legitimate complaints that have legitimate reasons behind them sort of get lost in the mass of outrage machine that the internet has become. And so I understand the reaction of somebody who, as soon as they start receiving criticism from masses of internet people, just start trying to do whatever they can to stem the tide. And from their perspective, they don't really differentiate between, like, you're the 400th television program this year to kill a gay character versus, oh my god, you had the angle of the Delta wrong on your uniforms. Oh man, they got the Deltas wrong on so many uniforms. Oh my god, dude. Like, from their perspective, I can see them eventually no longer making that distinction because it's just one big wall of noise coming at them. And the legitimate criticism sort of gets lost in the mass. And so, like, as long as they're not saying, like, you know, Hey, we had a gay character, aren't you happy? What the fuck, queers? As long as they're not doing that, I'm willing to cut them some slack. <sighs> Can I ask a question? You might know this, or, or might not. I, I don't know this. Okay, go ahead. 
There's like, you know, 147 credited producers on this show. Yes. Are any of them gay? Like, do they have gay creators behind this creative endeavor of, like, the first gay characters on a Star Trek show? I have no idea. I know Anthony Rapp and Wilson Cruz are. Yes, that's, the actors are. That's an important thing to note as well. Yes, They yeah. at least have gay people playing the gay characters, so at least someone in the process is, is informed on the issue. And speaking of people who get death threats over, over various things, there's, there's Anthony Rapp. <laughs> I have no idea if any of the writers or producers are gay. I assume... Get enough people in a room, some of them should be. I was going to say, just because there's so many of them, you'd think just by the law of averages. I actually, on episode 10, I actually counted. And I don't know if this changed from episode to episode, but I actually counted on episode 10. On the opening credits for episode 10, just in the opening credits, there were 19 credited producers in the opening credits. Yeah, well, there's been some more uh, churn heading into season two as well, but, uh, you know, a couple people got dropped mid-filming, a couple people got added. It, it's it's a whole thing. There's 19 producers, and I don't know how many more writers they have that didn't get a producer title. Although with 19 producers, you'd think the couple of writers that aren't producers would be pretty jealous. Yeah, maybe. I want to say with that great number of people, there's just by chance you'd wind up with a couple of not straight people. But then again, you know, systems of privilege. It's still Hollywood, yeah. So who knows? But I, I would be curious. I mean, obviously Anthony Rapp and Wilson Cruz were involved, and they don't seem to have a problem with it. Like, any, any interview they've given or any statement they've made, they've never made, like, some sort of tepid... Well, they made a creative decision for the character, and, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens to Stamets next season after this happened. It, you know, they could give really tepid statements that very clearly broadcast their personal opinion of, yeah, it's a bunch of bullshit, but I'm getting a paycheck, so I'm not going to say that. But none of their statements have conveyed that message that I've seen. Right. So they seem to not be outraged, at least. I'll go that far. Whatever their true feelings are, from what I can tell based on their public statements, they at least seem to be genuinely not outraged, not angered that this happened to the characters. And as the only gay people that I know of involved with the creation of these gay characters, I'm going to take that as a sign that, you know, this isn't necessarily the worst thing in the world. But again, I'm a straight dude, so feel free to ignore my opinion totally. <laughs> also, I haven't seen Wilson Cruz in anything since like 1995 or so. Yeah. Damn, he's so much bigger than I remember. <laughs> like, I remember him being like this skinny, slight little thing, and he's like standing there in his medical uniform with his giant, broad shoulders. Well, those uniforms buffed out pretty much everyone on the show. You know, those uniforms had some serious shoulder pad action. I feel like the medical uniform had even more of it, though. I mean... It might have, yeah. I'm not sure how I feel... I mean, I understand trying to appease the fan outrage by saying, don't worry, he's coming back, but... I'm not sure I'm in favor of them bringing back all the dead people. Like, they're gonna have Giorgio back. Now you're saying they're gonna have Lorca back. They're gonna have Culber back. Nobody's said anything about bringing Lorca back. That's just me assuming. 
maybe it would have leaked if he was in Toronto when they were filming or whatever, but... Uh, that's just me assuming that they can't let a stunning plot twist like that go. I would really like to see Prime Lorca, because without all that hard-ass bullshit and forced edginess in the character, I, re- I did really enjoy the character, and I thought Jason Isaacs was great. Oh yeah, Jason so, Isaacs was, was very good. I would really like to see Prime Lorca as a regular character. I, I think that would be great. Do you think everyone got a little two-dimensional when they went to the Mirror Universe? In what way? Maybe it's the way that this kind of plot has sometimes, where the person who is being revealed as a secret traitor is a lot more interesting when they're pretending not to be than when they finally make their betrayal public and their only character note is sneering villain. Well, I mean... Everyone in the Mirror Universe's only character trait is Sneering Villain. The only character traits of Mirror Universe characters are Sneering Villain and the women are all bi. Yes, we... They carried over that characterization from DS9. That's very good continuity. (laughs) Yes, of course, we had to have the evil space bisexuals. Well, while we're talking about the show's interactions with queer culture, the evil space bisexuals... That's that's a plot facet that a lot of people, again, have problems with that I completely understand. You know, portraying bisexual people as one, promiscuous, and two, treacherous, you know, also is a trope. But at the same time, maybe I just received it in DS9 at such a formative age that, like, I can't unsee it. But I just think it's fun to have evil space bisexuals. It would be, you know, I don't think there would be any worry about that if they had established in some way that Prime Giorgio was bi as well. Yeah, see, that's the thing. It's only a problem when only the evil ones are bisexual or only the evil ones are lesbian. Exactly. That's when it becomes problematic. Yes, it's problematic AF. So, we're kind of pinging all over the place. What about the show do you think worked for you? Well, I mentioned a couple of things. I like, I loved Stamets when he was high on the mycelium. He's a great, fun character. I think Anthony Rapp is great in this show. Really, other than the first, like, two or three episodes where he was, like, just a dick to everyone because he was angry that Lorca was making him try to win the war, once he got past that character note, Really, the entire rest of the season, other than, like, there was that one episode where Dick Stamets returned for, like, three scenes. But really, other than that, he was just great. He was a joy. Like I said, I liked Lorca and Jason Isaacs, other than the Mirror Universe shit and the, you know, we have to win the war. We've talked about that. I really liked Burnham. I liked Sonequa Martin-Green's performance of, like, a sort of coolly rational person. Frankly, she almost does a better job of playing a Vulcan than James Frain does. Yeah, well, James Frain I don't think we'll be talking about in the What Worked For Us section. No, but I really liked her performance, and I mean, the character had some missteps, but I think overall it's really good, and I think she did a really good job with it, and so I enjoyed, even if I didn't enjoy everything he did with the character, I, I enjoyed her performance. The end of the Mirror Universe arc was probably some of the better episodes. Well, I guess the better episode, because everything happened so fast on the show, it was only one episode. The beginning of the Mirror Universe thing took forever, and I think it was about an episode, or at least half an episode too long, but the end of the Mirror Universe thing was probably the episodes that it was the least of a trial to sit through. 
Well, I think it really got cooking in that last episode in the Mirror Universe when back on the Discovery, the entire crew, again, was working together and problem-solving. Yes. And, and putting together Speaking the... of things that worked, Saru. Saru was great. So good. Doug Jones, so good. So in, good. Yes, I, I can't wait to have that character get deep into Little... Yeah, supposedly they're doing an episode on his homeworld in season two. That should be really interesting. Yeah, and and they're doing before season two premieres. They're doing the short treks, like ten fifteen minute mini episodes, and one of those oh, is about boy. Saru. Uh, not the one written by Michael Shabon. Yeah, they're doing the one written by Michael Shabon. There's one about Saru, and there's another one uh, where uh, they're getting Rain Wilson back. So they're doing a Harry Mud one. Well, hopefully it's better written. But yeah, Saru was very good when Saru took command of the Discovery and, and started... That speech he gives in engineering? So good. That was your prototypical Star Trek speech. Yes, it was. You can put that up with, you know, you had the Kirk speeches and the Picard speeches and the Cisco speeches. Everyone had speeches. Everyone had speeches. Uh, that that Saru speech was uh, right there with them. It was under very other nice. You, you know what? Under other circumstances... Work as whole, these people aren't like us, they don't have the strength of our diversity, might have wound up in consideration on that sort of list. I don't know, I was just so kind of put off Lorca's character at his introduction that that, that didn't really sink in for me. Eh, Lorca had his good notes and his bad notes. But we're talking about what worked for us. <laughs> Tilly, you mentioned, she's really good. Yes. I really like her, her interactions with people. I don't think I would rank her really very high on my list of favorite characters, but I love her interactions with almost every character. Her and Stamets, her and Burnham, her and Saru. All of her interactions with other characters are great. Anything else worked? Oh, Jesus. Um... <laughs> that might be the end of the list. Oh, man. Um... I mean, I liked Michelle Yeoh in the first two episodes when she was playing normal Giorgio. Michelle Yeoh. I mean, I guess she was still good playing the Mirror Giorgio, but I'm just so down on most of that Mirror Universe stuff that it sort of soured my impression of it. Yeah, Michelle Yeoh was, was very good. They tried to make Mirror Giorgio less two-dimensional than some of the other Mirror characters, because she still had that sympathy for Burnham, even though it wasn't her Burnham. But even that, I don't know, came off a little trite to yeah. me. But, I mean, Michelle Yeoh doing fight choreography... Just like, okay, so, yeah. so obviously outpaces everyone else. It's ridiculous. I think Jason Isaacs posted a video online of him practicing his big fight with Michelle Yeoh at the end of the Mirror Universe arc. <laughs> and he captioned it something like, you know, Michelle Yeoh, martial arts master, fights a guy made of left feet and thumbs. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, they're practicing their fight, and they're going at half speed, and she's still whipping around him, and he's... It's incredible. <laughs> I think that might... Is there anything else that you would add to a list of things that really worked well? I mean, of some, the characters... The characters were so much better than the story on this show. Yeah. Saru, Stamets, Tilly, Burnham to an extent. The characters were so much better than the storylines. Which sort of makes me think that this would be such a much better show if they weren't trying so hard to be prestige television, you know, super dramatic. Well, do you think that that attachment to such a surfeit of plot 
and plot twists. Do you think that that might be the way that this Star Trek show, like many other Star Trek shows, has to take a season or two to kind of work into its format? I was thinking about that when we finished watching season one the second time. Like, on the whole, it was it had its ups and downs, and there were things I liked and there were things I didn't, but like, on the whole, was it better or worse than TNG season one? Oh, God. See, I find it so hard to judge against any Star Trek shows in a way because it's so hyper-serialized. And so I can't make up, like, a proportion of good episodes to bad episodes because it's all one story. Yeah, I, I have a lot of trouble remembering, like, what happened in which episode. And this is the first Star Trek show that doesn't have the names of the episodes on the episodes, so I don't even remember the names half the time. That That is something that stands out because I hate and fear change. <laughs> Um, I mean, you can talk about it in the broad strokes. I mean, you can talk about the first two episodes, the sort of prologue section, and then, you know, everything up to the Mirror Universe arc, and then the Mirror Universe arc, and the resolution of the war. So, so I mean, you, you can carve the season up, It's you just can't really carve it up neatly into episodes, yeah. individual episodes. So it, it, it makes it a little hard. That's the reason we're not doing episode-by-episode episode breakdown here, because you just can't. I mean, we could, but why would we want to? Every episode was such a chore. Well, I think we left our section on what worked for us. <laughs> I mean, I don't think there was anything in this season that was as good as, like, where no one has gone before. I don't think there was anything in this episode that was as good as the neutral zone. I mean, maybe as good as the neutral zone. Yeah, I'm not that high on the neutral zone. I like that episode. I find it really hard to compare such a hyper-serialized story to individual problems of the week. Even in a bad season of television, you know, like Next Gen Season 1 or, or Voyager, any... <laughs> Maybe that's a little unfair. Yeah, I can't compare it to Voyager because I didn't like Voyager at all. And I can't compare it to DS9 because I like DS9 Season 1 so much more than anyone else does. DS9 Season 1 is good. It does have its fair share of stinkers. It has some. You know... I'm not sure that any individual episode of Disco so far is as bad as The Passenger. Mm. Just in terms of being boring. The Passenger is boring. Not even the first Mirror Universe episode where she, like, goes to the planet and meets Mirror Sarek, and, like, they spend the whole episode above the planet not destroying it, and then at the end the Emperor shows up and destroys it, and that's it. That's the whole story of the episode. I mean, it's got a shocking swerve in it, but really, it's kind of a chore. Well, isn't that also the one where they reveal Voke and he tries to kill her? There's all of that going on. Yeah, I wasn't really personally counting that as in favor of the episode. Sure. But I mean, I guess you can. You do you. Okay. Well, alright, let's talk about the whole Tyler Voke thing. I think it's another really good idea that... I think, faltered in the execution. I think in the effort to wring maximum melodrama out of it, they kind of went a little too far. I don't know that they went too far, I just think they did it too quickly, because they, they had so few episodes to work with. Like, they went from, like, tentative first kiss straight into a relationship in, like, two or three episodes. And then, like, practically as soon as they were established in a relationship, now it was time for the betrayal. 
Like, they didn't give anything room to breathe. They didn't give anything room to settle. Like, let them be in a relationship for a few episodes before you reveal the betrayal. You know, she keeps saying, I loved Tyler, and the betrayal hurt me. But, like, she was only together with Tyler for, like, an episode or two. Like, that that would feel so much more real if it had been for six episodes. I mean, to be fair, it was a few episodes. I mean, they finally got together for real, I think probably uh, when they when they bonded over his whole uh, PTSD attack when they were on the Klingon ship, right before they went to the Mirror Universe. And, yeah. then, and then it was like... Which was the episode before they were in the Mirror Universe. Yeah, and then it was, you know, two or three episodes of, you know, him being with her on the Mirror Shenzhou and trying to protect her and, and having his little flashes... It before the episode. They fought the Klingon ship of the dead, and he had his flashbacks. They arrive in the Mirror Universe, and she infiltrates the Shenzhou. The next episode is the reveal. Regardless. Like I said, this story was too much story to cram into 15 episodes. It should have run over multiple seasons, give it all time to breathe, give things time to settle... You have to establish the routine before you can do a shocking swerve. If you just do shocking swerve after shocking swerve after shocking swerve, they don't mean anything because the status quo hasn't had time to settle in. That's why I was thinking that what they needed was more filler episodes. Extend this arc over a couple of seasons and do some episodes where the A story isn't an incredibly vital plot point to the overall arc. I mean, DS9 had an overall arc, but not every episode's A story was the overall arc. Yeah, there were... X-Files' first few seasons had very few episodes where the A story was the overall arc, and those were the good seasons. Later in the series, every episode started to become about the arc, and the show started sucking. Let the B story be related to your overall arc. Let the B story be, oh look, Burnham and Tyler are settling into their relationship. Oh, look, Burnham and Tyler are growing even closer now that they're in a relationship. Let that breathe. Let that develop. Let that settle in and become the norm before you do the shocking swerve of the betrayal. How many episodes did we know Stamets before he totally changed his personality into drunk Stamets? Was it two or three? Yeah, I, I think it was about three. <laughs> you think that change would have been better if it had been seven? Like, if he was just a dick to everyone the way he was a dick to Burnham and a dick to Tilly and a dick to Lorca, even though he sort of deserved it, if Stamets was that dick character for seven episodes and then all of a sudden he became happy, drunk on mycelium Stamets, that would have been a much more interesting character change because there would be an established character to change. You realize what we're essentially saying about the show is that it, it, was, it was such an unimpressive show, and in such small portions. Well, one of the reasons it didn't work is because they tried to do all these shocking swerves, but, like, like I said, the status quo has to take time to become the status quo before you can shake it up. If you just shake it up and then shake it up and then shake it up and then shake it up, you know, nothing becomes normal. The whole point of a shocking swerve is that you think you know what's going on, and then all of a sudden everything is different. If every th if all of a sudden everything is different, and then all of a sudden it's different again, and then all of a sudden it's different again, and then all of a sudden it's different again, it doesn't have the same impact. It would also would have made the ending work better. 
the ending where Starfleet suddenly decides, hey, we're going to genocide the Klingon homeworld. Oh my god, yeah. And they do this because they've been devastated in the war. This war has been devastating, it's been going on for at least a year and a half, they've lost 20% of the Federation territory, they've lost all their star bases, all the top brass, half of their starships, and they're so beleaguered and so beaten down and so desperate that they're willing to resort to this tactic, this desperate, evil tactic, because they're so desperate just to survive. Except we don't see any of that, we're only told about that. What do we see of the war? We see the opening battle... And we see, like, the one fight on the mining planet and one one-on-one ship confrontation with the Ship of the Dead. That's all we see of the war. We don't see the devastation of the war. We don't see the casualties of the war. When DS9 did In the Pale Moonlight, we saw the war. We saw them lose the station. We saw them in time to stand. We saw them fighting in rocks and shoals. We saw the casualties of the war. We saw the battles of the war. We saw the war weariness on all of these characters. We didn't see any of that. So when all of a sudden they're like, let's genocide the homeworld, it doesn't work. You understand why Cisco did that in, in The Pale Moonlight, because you've seen him be beaten down by how the war is going. You've seen him lose important things. You've seen the war weariness. You've seen the casualties. You've seen the battles. We didn't see any of that in this show. So when all of a sudden they're like, we're so desperate that we're going to genocide the Klingon homeworld, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel earned. You don't understand why they're so desperate as to try this because we haven't seen the war be desperate. We haven't seen the casualties of the war. We haven't seen the war weariness beating down on everyone. We haven't seen all of the battles that they're desperately fighting. We don't see any of that. We're just told about it. If this thing was 30 episodes instead of 15, we could see some of that. We could see the characters gradually growing in war weariness. We could see the characters gradually becoming disillusioned with things as the war wears on and on and on, like Bashir and Time to Stand. We could see that sort of thing develop. So when at the end they're like, we're so desperate, we're going to blow up the entire homeworld, we would understand how they came to that, how they became so desperate that they could do that. We could understand where that sort of decision comes from. In this way, we're just told about it. I mean, the entire war, there's a six-month time gap and then a nine-month time gap. The entire war happens off-screen. And so when all of a sudden they become so desperate that they're willing to genocide the home world, we don't feel that desperate because we haven't seen them be desperate. We haven't seen the war, the desperation of the war. It is, it does feel extremely quick to have everyone resorting to the very worst ideas that they possibly could. Even from Sarek doing forcible mind melds to verify people's identity, and then later in that episode they decide to hand over the whole operation to the Mirror Emperor. It, it's just so, like, ruthlessly dark without earning it. Exactly. We don't see them earn it. We don't see the desperation slowly grow. We're just all of a sudden told, hey, we're desperate. And again, if they'd let the thing breathe, if they'd done episodes whose point wasn't a major part of the overall arc, if they'd done episodes like AR-558, whose point was just, look at this devastation of war. If they'd had two seasons to spread this thing out and they'd been able to show us more of that, 
then at the end in episode like 27 or 28 when they're like we're so desperate we're willing to listen to the terran emperor because we're so desperate we would understand that we would feel that because we would have experienced that with the characters we didn't experience any of that because everything was so rushed because they were trying to cram in an entire war and a mirror universe saga all in 15 episodes yeah, I've got to think they could have shown a lot more of that without the Mirror Universe stuff. Yeah, that seems like an unnecessary sidetrack. I mean, it feels like... I mean, it feels a little bit like Brian Fuller might have thought his time on Star Trek might be short, so he wanted to get in everything he wanted to do. Yeah, it was shorter than he thought. Well, yeah. consideration paid for by the following hey pro wrestling announcer kevin kelly here i want to make sure you are all subscribed to all the great feeds here at place to be nation it's really easy to do just head to itunes or your preferred podcatcher app today and search and subscribe to the place to be nation wrestling feed which of course includes the full archives of the kevin kelly show the place to be nation pod feed and the pro wrestling only feed Subscribe, listen, and then rate us and leave feedback today. And be sure to give Justin your true thoughts. I mean, don't hold back. After all, he is kind of a jerk. Just listen to Scott. Place for Nations, JT Rosero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and placefornation.com. We offer them to you on two great feeds. On the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, we bring you the Mothership, the Place to Be podcast, along with Main Event, Survey Says, The Monday Night Wars, and our monthly pay-per-view reaction show, as well as Jeff Learns Wrestling. In addition to these full-length shows, we also deliver special network podcasts and pod blasts on topics old and new. Over on the Pro Wrestling Only feed, we dive deep inside the wrestling business with a stacked army of experts leading the way. The feed features potpourri shows such as This Week in Wrestling, Greetings from Allentown, Match of the Week podcast, and the Military Industrial Suplex. We also have shows that focus intently on certain topics like Through the Years, Worldcast, Strong Style History, Strong Style Story, and Mount Olympus. Plus, the feed has the full archives of legendary shows like Titans of Wrestling, Where the Big Boys Play, Letters from Center Stage, and Letters from Kayfabe, plus much more. And on our very popular Place to Be Nation Pop podcast feed, we offer such great shows as Talkin' Pop, the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, NBA Team, PTBM Play, Sunday Groove, 
Breaking Balls, and Lucha Undead. As well as a vertical podcast heaven for comics fans. With the hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversations, Geek and Sassy, and Marvel Age Podcasts. You can find all of these current shows, plus archives of our past podcasts, including the Kevin Kelly Show, as well by subscribing to both feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback today. All these shows, plus others, available at PlaySpation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus in-depth stretch projects, and more. Be sure to support our site by using PlaySpation.com slash Amazon when doing your online shopping, and download our free PTB Vintage Vault Refresh eBooks via the links on our site. We also want to thank our friends at Boneheads, Wing Bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island, and Fall River, Massachusetts, and the History of Wrestling.com. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaySpation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Nobody needs me. Can we talk about my other problem with the whole resolution? Sure, let's go. I said in our first episode, when we were reviewing the first two episodes, and all we knew of the rest of the series was the preview that ran at the end of episode two, I said they're doing some sort of freaky experiment on the ship, and at the end they're going to retcon the war away. Yeah. Because that was the only way I could reconcile this devastating, quadrant-wide war with the Klingons with the relative status quo that we see in the original series ten years later. Where the status with the Klingons is the Cold War. Yeah. And as the show went on, nothing dissuaded me from that theory. Like, another aspect of the Harry Mudd episode was Stamets is unstuck in time. Yeah. I stood by my theory, they're going to retcon the war. And then when they said, we're temporarily displaced coming back from the Mirror Universe... We're temporarily displaced by nine months. Well, there's a six-month time gap, and the show's been going on for a few months. We're temporarily displaced by nine months. They're going to retcon the war. And then they, they went the wrong way, and it was even later in the war, and there was just, you know, the Klingons were approaching Earth, and they destroyed every starbase, and they killed the Starfleet brass, and, and they're approaching Earth, and they took 20% of the Federation, and they're just devastating everything. And I'm like... They're going to use the spore drive to temporarily displace, and they're going to retcon the war. That's going to be the resolution. And then that wasn't the resolution. And frankly, I think it would have been a better resolution. Like, what is the status quo now? There's a bomb in Kronos, and this one woman has the trigger, and she uses that to take control. All they have to do is kill her, and then no one can set off the bomb. And then they can go right back to attacking the Federation. Like, the, the whole resolution makes no sense. I mean, not only is their desperation unearned, but the resolution to the war that they reach doesn't really make sense. I think it would have worked better if Cornwell, like, gives the proposal. Like, you know, we're going to use the Terran Emperor, and we're going to put a bomb in Kronos, and we're going to cripple the Klingon war effort. And then Burnham and Stamets and Saru and maybe Tilly, they all get together, and they're like, you know, we can't allow this to happen. What are we going to do? And Stamets is like, you know, we can temporarily displace. I can figure this out. 
So you were still go- you were still hoping for that resolution right up until the end. I think it would have been a better resolution. They go back to the initial battle of the binary stars, and they do what Burnham wanted to do in the first place, which is destroy the one ship before it has the chance to unite the houses and start the war. And the Klingons are impressed by the show of strength, and they wind up in this sort of not-quite-at-war detente that we see in the original series. I think that would have, frankly, been a much better resolution than what they eventually did. Speaking of some meta elements, I don't think this is a show that's going to push the reset button, because it's a show that knows how much people hate the reset button. Yeah, I understand that, but I still think it would have been a better resolution. I don't disagree. I think it would have been more in line with what we already know of the universe from the original series. I think it would have made more sense than the resolution, the way it played out on the show. I think it would have led to better outcomes for the characters. Like, you know, Burnham's Mutiny is erased. Michelle Yeoh can come back because she's still alive. I think it would have resolved a lot of things better than the resolution they did on the show. Like, like at the end, they're just like, oh, we won the war, so we don't mind about your mutiny anymore. Yeah, basically. Again, this might be something that, that's unearned, but the show tries to place so much emphasis on, you know, capital letters, Starfleet's values, without really showing us a whole lot of people living them. Because they're so invested in showing the desperation that people have that leads them to break them. That's another thing they could have done with more episodes, is show some of Starfleet's values before they skipped right to the point where they showed everybody violating them because of the desperation. I mean, some of that was shown in some small ways, especially in contrast to Lorca, when, you know, Stamets would talk about using the Mycelium network to explore, which was exploited by Loika. Loika? Troika. (laughs) Troika, yes. The only time we actually see Starfleet values is in the first episode where they counter the mutiny, and it leads to the war. Like, the only time we see people adhering strictly to Starfleet values, they're portrayed as hopelessly naive and ignorant of how they're projecting themselves. Yeah, so you think there's there's a certain cynicism about it? Like, honestly... How on the nose are you if you literally make We Come in Peace part of every greeting? And do you honestly say that and expect the people you say it to to believe you? Yeah, that is... I think that's definitely them being portrayed as naive on that. Hopelessly! Especially... Also, how many times does Cornwell describe something as humanely? What happens to Klingon prisoners? Well, they're interrogated humanely... What are you going to do with me now that I'm here in your parallel universe? Well, we're going to take you to the Starbase and we'll hold you humanely. Like, people that use the word humanely to describe their behavior that much and tell literally everyone they meet, hey, we come in peace, they cannot expect to be believed when they keep saying that. Nobody who proclaims those things that often is being honest about it. Well, and of course, these are the people who were so quick to abandon everything and and resort to the genocide and the forced mind melds and all this. 
Yeah, Sarek is super involved with Starfleet for a dude that still hates his son ten years later for daring to enlist in Starfleet. Do you want to talk about Sarek? That's another thing that would have been better if they had just omitted it. If they just made that a different Vulcan. That would have made everything ten thousand times better. The that performance wouldn't... I would not be judging the performance as harshly if I wasn't, like, saying he doesn't act like Mark Leonard. Well, yeah, that's true. I mean, you can recast a lot of people, and the, the original series has been recast. You know, it's going to be recast for the second time now, because for season two, we got the Enterprise now. So, you can recast a lot of people. It is very hard to recast Mark Leonard. They didn't even manage to do it for the J.J. movies, and they recast everyone pretty well. The J.J. movies got a little more leeway because it's a mirror universe. I mean, it's not the mirror universe, but it's a different universe. Yeah. So... You sort of grant them a little leeway there, but, like, he's literally supposed to be playing Mark Leonard, and he is not Mark Leonard. Like, seriously, I watch his performance, and I'm thinking, is Leonard Nimoy literally the only person that ever figured out how to properly play a Vulcan character? Like, Mark Leonard, who played a Vulcan really good? Leonard Nimoy, Mark Leonard, who possibly learned it from Nimoy, Zachary Quinto, who learned it from Nimoy, and I guess Celia Lovsky and Dame Judith Anderson. They were pretty good. Sure, yeah. And you know, Tim Other than that, no one has played a Vulcan any good. Tim Ross got it. He was good. <sighs> I guess he was okay. Yeah, you're right. He was pretty good. He was... I mean, he wasn't as good as those other ones I mentioned, but he was okay. He had his own style, but it worked because he was a different Vulcan. Yeah. If somebody acted like Tim Ross, but they were supposed to be playing Spock, that would be terrible. Well. But his acting worked for that character. It, it it was good enough for a Vulcan character. But every other Vulcan, they just try to be, like, sort of... Wooden. Wooden, and sometimes, like, breathy to sound wise. Oh, there's a lot of excessive breathiness going on in this show. Yeah, and that's not Mark Leonard. I mean, I said Mark Leonard when I meant Sarek, but that's the problem! <laughs> James Freen would have been fine as, like, any other Vulcan. Call him... <laughs> call him Nimoy! Oh, my God. Or, you know, something like that. Call him... Like, no, it would have been fine if they wanted to recast Stan. Yeah, that would have worked. <laughs> I don't think Stan is old enough to be in that position. But no, like, you know, no, no. Call him Nemok, the oh Vulcan. My, oh, my God. Or, 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 you know... Anything. He could have played any other Vulcan. He... he he looked and sounded more like Torek than Sarek. <laughs> if he was not supposed to be playing Sarek, his performance would have been fine. It would have been perfectly acceptable. But to put that on screen and call it Sarek is just no. He never expressed the sense of wisdom and, and sort of... He tried to with the excessive breathiness. I suppose, but that's just a cheap way to try to do it. Yes. But Sarek was very declarative. Like, Vorik and Torek, that actor did the same sort of thing, where he just sort of like, I do not believe that would be a good course of action. Softening your voice with the extra breathiness to try to sound more wise and sedate. That's not how Mark Leonard played the character. Right. That's not how Leonard Nimoy played the character, and that's not how Quinto plays the character. Actually, all the really good Vulcans I mentioned, that's not how they played the character. They were damn declarative and 
brimming, over brimming with gravitas for the most part. Gravitas, that's the word I was looking for. Mark Leonard as Sarek was practically a performance over brimming with gravitas. Yes, and James Crane has none in this role. No. Like I said, if he could have been just any other Vulcan. He I'm... was a Vulcan who was a co-worker with her parents in the lab, and so he felt obligated to care for this child who, who was the orphan child of his friends. Or his colleagues, or whatever word he feels comfortable using because he's a Vulcan. I mean, that gets us out of some of the more excessive notes, too, with, you know, Amanda and Spock and all that. By the way... By the way... I made a note the first time we watched the finale to look this up, and I didn't even see that note, but in the middle of episode six, I looked this up. The actress who plays Amanda in this show, in Discovery, is uh, Mia Kirshner. She is ten years older than Sonequa Martin-Green. Ah, uh, figures. James Frain is seven years older than her, so seventeen years older than Sonequa Martin-Green. Which, I mean, isn't terrible. He could be a younger colleague of her parents. Huh. That could work. Yeah, there weren't a lot of older actors on this show at all. Where... I mean, it's, it's just as well that they had Admiral Cornwell as, you know, a middle-aged woman. Uh, you don't have enough of them on TV. Yeah, that's true. Um, I haven't seen her since Chicago Hope. Right. But otherwise... Everyone on the show is pretty young. The other... Th well, not Jason Isaacs. I guess, but... Ugh. The other thing I looked up, the next episode, Rain Wilson... Not Rain Robinson? Rain Wilson is 52. Yeah. The woman who played Stella is 28. Uh... uh I mean, that goes to his character, but still. Mm. If you want to interpret it that way, it also goes to the character of, you know... Alex Kurtzman and all these people. Uh. <laughs> that actually surprised me, because, like, the first time I saw that episode, I'm like, wow, she's 18. Mm-hmm. She looks very young. Right. But then again, I didn't think Rain Robinson was in his 50s, so that was kind of surprising to me, too, but I pegged him for 40s, at least. Rain Robinson, thank you. Whatever. You know what I mean. I do. The guy who could play Harry Mudd if anyone would write Harry Mudd instead of a psychopathic killer. Well, I guess we'll see what the Harry Mudd short is. <laughs> Amanda also, by the way. I mean, nothing against this Mia Kirshner, but she does not bring the gravitas to the role that Jane Wyatt had. She tries. Uh, her scenes with Burnham, I think, are good. Again, she seems good in that sort of mother role. She seems very caring and very nurturing. She seems like she cares about Burnham, so that comes across in the performance. But she just doesn't seem like Amanda, which again is the problem. There's a difference between simply casting a character and recasting a character that's already been played by someone else. If it was just a new character, she would have been fine. She would have been great. It would have been weird to have another Vulcan married to a human. Yeah, that I don't think would fly that well. But I I reiterate, Sarek is super involved with Starfleet for somebody that still hates his son for being in Starfleet ten years later. Well, it's one thing for Sarek to do something in his role as, like, a venerated figure in the Federation, apparently, and another thing for his son to do something other than what Sarek has planned for him. 
Although, if you want to look at it, much like with Cybok in Star Trek V, where Cybok actually fills in a lot of gaps and unexplained things in Spock's backstory, the fact that he shafted Burnham and sacrificed her place on the Vulcan Expeditionary Force so that Spock could have that place instead, and then Spock spurned it and ran off to Starfleet, that would explain why he's so pissed at Spock about that. Yeah, that definitely adds another... Uh note of disdain for that character note, for sure. Oh, I'm so desperate for some mention of Cybok somewhere in this. I... Just to see the fans online go nuts. Oh, How man. dare you maintain continuity with the original? Oh, God. Well, yeah, there's... there's Cause a... Especially this season where they're going to have Spock somehow. Do you want to talk about season two? Eventually. But I'm, I'm just saying, if they're going to have Burnham and Spock and Sarek is around, somebody has to mention Cybok. Please, please, please. Oh, God. You want to get to other parts of the overarching story that just don't fucking work? Uh, what else didn't work for you? There are some great crimes in cinema. Mm-hmm. The most famous of these is, of course... Elrond should have pushed him. Okay. If this ring is such a danger, and having it in the hands of a man is such a vulnerability, then at that moment, when the man tries to claim the ring, Elrond should have said fuck this and pushed him into the lava and destroyed the ring. Added to the pantheon right now is Burnham was right. Burnham was absolutely 100% right. The Federation dicking around, and we come in peace, and please talk to us, and you happen to have invaded our territory with your massive warship, and would you mind terribly if we sat down and had a conversation about your invasion of our territory with your massive warship? I think that would be nice. I'll bring scones. Burnham was right. Burnham could have stopped the war. Burnham could have prevented all of this from happening. And every single time somebody tries to blame her for starting the war, I want to throw something through the television. Because the only thing she did to start the war was fail in her mutiny. If her mutiny had been successful, she would have prevented the war, she would have prevented 8,126 deaths, she would have prevented losing all these ships and all these star bases. She was right, right from the beginning. The person who started the war was Saru for getting in her way, the weapons officer for not firing when she told him to, Giorgio for stopping her. Those are the people that bungled all of this, refused to listen to her sage advice, and blundered their way into the war. And the show actually acknowledges this. Because in the very first episode, she's court-martialed for a mutiny, and then what does she have to do later in the show? She has to call Saru and convince him to mutiny against Captain Lorca. And then she goes back to the ship and gets together with Saru and Tilly and the rest of the bridge crew and convinces all of them to mutiny against Captain Giorgio and Admiral Cornwell. The two crucial overarching plots are resolved by Burnham convincing the crew to rebel against their orders and do what's right instead of what they've been ordered to by Starfleet. Which, if she had managed to do that in episode one, there wouldn't have been a war. And every time someone tries to say, you helped start this war, or you started the war, or your mutiny started the war, every time someone says that, I want to punch that character in the face. 
Well, technically, the mutiny didn't start the war. She started the war when she killed the torchbearer. She killed the torchbearer in self-defense in an attempt to escape. He was the one who attacked. Yeah, but we're already presenting the Starfleet people as a little naive. And yes, the Klingons, you know, sent that guy out there to get killed to start a war to make Kronos great again, but regardless of the fact that it's an obvious pretext the Klingons put out, it is the pretext that the Klingons had for attacking or counterattacking. If that ship had been destroyed by the time the other ships of the Great Houses got there and the Victoria Starfleet ship was sitting there among the debris, there wouldn't have been a war. It would have broken down to the tense standoff that we saw in the original series. That's why the retcon resolution actually would have been better. Because it would have fit more with established canon, and it would have been the full circle for Burnham, where she saves the ship by convincing them to rebel against Lorca, and she saves the day, saves the soul of the Federation by convincing everyone not to follow the orders of Admiral Cornwell, it would have been full circle for her to go back and correct the initial mistake where she failed to convince everyone what was necessary in this situation regardless of orders. What they try to do at the end is to present it as a final mutiny to stand up for, again, capital letters, the values of Starfleet, where Burnham says that she let those down at the beginning. I mean, that's the parallel that they're trying to draw there. Yeah, but what they show on screen is that she was right. <laughs> well. Like, she fails in her mutiny. They don't act belligerently because she wants them to. They act the way they're supposed to as the Federation, and what that leads to is the war. And it pissed me off so much. Right at the beginning, in episode two, where Giorgio says shit like, you know, what have you done, or how could you have done this? And I just, I, I want to scream back at the character, she was the one trying to prevent this! You're the one who caused this! And then, and then the other prisoners are like, you're responsible for 8,000 deaths. And she doesn't respond with, no, I was trying to stop the war. That's why I went against orders. And my reward for trying to stop the war is that I was court-martialed. Well, no, because by that and point... And your reward for sticking with your Federation values is 8,000 dead. Congratulations. Well, no, she doesn't object by that point, because by that point, she's racked in guilt. I mean, she basically spends the rest of the season in a fog of guilt over Giorgio dying. I feel that's one of the saddest things, is that they've almost convinced her that she was at fault. When, like I said, she was right from the beginning. Elrond should have pushed him, and Burnham was right. Also, by the way, can I just point out? Yeah, sure. Six months into the war, only 8,000 people have died? That doesn't sound too devastating to me. Well, I mean, a lot of them are just going to be on ships. That's before the Klingons really start invading planets, maybe. I mean, I'm surprised they didn't hit several thousand at the binary stars. How many starships were there? Yeah, but in the Tos era, starships only have a few hundred people on them. Yeah, somewhere, you know... I think they said Discovery has like 150 somewhere around there. Yeah, plus they rescued a lot of those people after the ships were downed. And we know the Constitution class has like four or something, 450? Uh, closer to 400, I think. 
I think it has fewer... Somehow they have fewer people in the cage than they do in toast time. So they're somewhere between that number at this point. But still, that's... For a, you know, galactic-scale war? Like, how long did it take for 8,000 people to die in World War One? Like, well, an hour? Well, God, yeah, World War One was a, just a fucking churn of human lives. Uh, we talk about how how dark things get for for the Federation and for Starfleet. In Episode 3, they're using slave labor. They're sending prisoners to mines. Well, prisoners are always used as slave labor. Even in the Star Trek Utopia future? Th that's kind of dark already. Wasn't Paris doing slave labor in Caretaker? When Janeway goes and finds him? He's doing, like, some sort of gardening job or something? He might have been gardening. I don't remember exactly. But that's hardly, you know, space mining. But, I mean, you know, even making license plates. Or doing the prison laundry. That's still slave labor. Yeah. I mean, making the prisoner do a job isn't necessarily evil. It's an easily slippery slope to slip down to go from, like, you're in prison anyway, we're going to make you do this minor, relatively simple job, like press license plates or wash the prison laundry, before you slip to, hey, we're going to hire you out to some manufacturer and let them pay us boatloads of money for your labor and you get bupkis, to, hey, you're just prisoners, we don't have to worry about safety. Yeah. I, I, I admit it's very easy to fall into exceedingly evil practices with prison labor, but merely giving prisoners a job to do during their sentence is not necessarily evil practice. Well, I mean, that is introduced in a conversation where they're talking about some accident where a bunch of miners died, and so they just call up some more to send on in there. Okay, that is hinting at... A more nefarious thing. You're right there. You know, that, that's that's something that evil Captain Lorca's hero, Elon Musk, might do. Yeah, that I made a note of that during... We're not going episode by episode, so I'm not like going through all my little notes, but... Yeah, that already feels really dated. I forget the... Was it like Thomas Edison, Elon Musk, and Zephram Cochran? The Wright brothers. The Wright brothers, Elon Musk, and Zephram Cochran, his list of famous inventors. Yeah. That already feels really, really dated. It feels dated, but it's just as well that it was evil Mirror Universe Lorca saying it, so... <laughs> yeah, who knows what Elon Musk did in the Mirror Universe? <laughs> Maybe he sent that, like, one-way trip to Mars. Because fuck him. I'm just going to prove of concept. Yeah, probably. <laughs> All right. Here's something I was wondering about. What, where's something you were wondering about? Does Lorca realize about Tyler at any point? Like, he invites him on board, and he's got his own nefarious schemes, and he's grooming Burnham. Does he know about Tyler and invite him on anyway, because he thinks he can use this somehow? I mean, when we thought he was a Starfleet captain, we just assumed he'd been duped. But now that we know he has his own nefarious purposes, was he trying to use this Klingon operative as part of his nefarious purposes somehow? Or was he, in fact, duped? I think he was probably duped as well. I think Lorca is pretty clearly focused on grooming Burnham and getting to the capital ship and supplanting the Emperor. 
I don't think that Tyler really fell into his plan other than this seems like a guy who is traumatized by the Klingons, and so he can use that. Yeah, okay, I can... Oh, man, I have so many other questions, then. Do you want my other Lorca questions or my other Tyler questions? Oh, jeez, here we go, all right. Why is Landry such a, like, competent, capable officer in the Mirror Universe and a reckless, foolhardy lunatic in the regular universe? Uh, maybe Lorca tried to groom her a little too fast. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Also, they have all these flashbacks of Voke's surgery to make him look human. Is anesthesia just not a Klingon thing? Or did they forget about anesthesia sometime in the 22nd century? Like, what the fuck? It's pretty dishonorable, right? The pain is purifying in the eyes of Kalesh. Oh god, we haven't talked about that. Do you want to talk about the Klingons? The Klingon, sh the Klingon speech is so bad. It's so slow. Why is every Klingon speaking like a student in Spanish 101 in the second class? You know, I'm kind of inclined to say that it's very hard for an actor to get through the level of mask that they're putting on the Klingons now. I would be inclined to say that and leave it at that, but Planet of the Apes was made over 45 years ago. Also, when Tyler starts speaking Klingon when he's trying to kill Burnham, he yeah. sounds the same. Yeah. All of the Klingons in this show sound like Barry White after a shot of Novocaine. Even Tyler when he's still human. Yeah, it, 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 that was, it was amazing to me how much better the show got in the, like, 15 or 20 minutes where Burnham opened up her communicator and used it as a translator and suddenly the Klingons were speaking English and talking about honor. That was going to be my next point. Why in scenes that are only Klingons don't they just have the speech in English so that we can understand it? Well, because this is a serious television show. Yes, but they're speaking Klingon so badly! They say every syllable separately and talk so deliberately. Yes, they do! And sometimes they add a random tone! Especially Voke. It's just... You can't have a 10 or 15 minute scene of just that. Jesus Christ, just have them speak English. We understand they're Klingons and they speak Klingons. Just have them talk in English. For fuck's sake. Yeah, I very much hope that when we get back to them in Season 2 that they've learned that lesson. I understand why they redesigned the look of the Klingons. We discussed that in our last episode. Yeah. But why did they make the speech so slow and plodding? No native speaker of a language speaks that slow and plodding. Yeah, that was a definite drawback to all of the Klingon scenes. It, it was very unfortunate. And yet, like, the very best Klingon scene in the whole show was when Burnham was confronting General Cole, and they were speaking English and talking about honor and fighting with Mechleths. Yeah, that was pretty cool. 
that whole bit really worked. See, the real problem, and I know you want to talk about like the rumors for next season, so I guess we can transition to that. I actually made a note back when we first watched the end of the series in like February or March or whatever. I noted down that like we talked before about like everything in the show is turned up to 11 to try to be a big dramatic prestige television event. And also they try to cram everything into one season. Mm-hmm. So it's not just a Star Trek show. It's the whole war and mutinies and devastation and attempted genocide and this radical never-before-seen technology we have to explore. And also we're in the mirror universe and all of this is super dramatic and all of it is turned up to 11 and all of it is happening all at once in one 15-episode run and really 13 episodes since the first two episodes are a complete prologue. And then next year, if they just try to do a Star Trek show, it's going to be so tonally different. And from the look of that trailer that they released the other day, it does look a lot more like they're just doing a Star Trek show next year, and it's going to be so tonally different. It already looks so tonally different. Oh, see, that's the thing I wanted to talk about with that Season 2 trailer, where I don't think it looks as much like they're doing just a Star Trek show as I would hope for, because, again, really? it's it's got to turn into a whole new epic arc. You know, it starts off as there's a weird science thing that we have to investigate, which is awesome, which is a Star Trek show, even if they have to shoehorn in Captain Pike and all that stuff. But then it turns into a whole huge epic arc where Burnham has to go find Spock. Yeah, like doing half of Star Trek 1 there where he's connected to the mysterious space phenomenon. I'm not sure that's necessary. I mean, we'll see how it plays out, but but that whole trailer is like happy and humor-filled and peppy. They definitely leaned on the more more humorous parts too and and more more of the crew, you know, liking each other and working together. The the Tilly and and Stamets stuff in that trailer was good. I mean, I'm sure that's going to be very enjoyable and I'm probably going to like it a lot more than this season, but it's still going to be weird comparing this first season to that. Uh, maybe, yeah. I mean, DS9 did a bit of a tonal shift when they went into the war years, but that was much more gradual from, like, season 1 to season 5 or 6. Well, yeah, they they did some shifts between seasons. I mean, between season 2 and 3, obviously, and a huge shift season 3 to 4. But, um, I mean, we'll see. Can I still be cautiously optimistic? (laughs) I mean, we've been complaining about this show for a while now. Can I still be cautiously optimistic about it? There's still a lot I like about this show, but it's just... Damn, sitting and watching the episodes was such a trial. There's just something off-putting about it somehow. And it's almost entirely the plot. Yes. Because, like, I kept listing all the characters I liked, and it's practically every character. I can't think of a character I didn't like, with the possible exception of Mirror Giorgio. Well, and all the people who got, like, no characterization. Like, there's the rest of the bridge crew. Yeah, but even what little they're there, I like them. The, uh, Detmer, the helmsman, and that security, the, um... No, not the security officer! <laughs> no, no, but the, the tactical guy, the guy that fires the weapons, yeah, the, the communications commu- officer. Yeah. I mean, I like all of them for what little they got to do. Sure. And Tilly suddenly becoming super confident after pretending to be Captain Killy for three episodes. That's so much fun. Oh my god. Far and away, the greatest thing about that whole Mirror Universe arc was Captain Killy. And over a few episodes, we got about ten minutes of her. What the heck? What the heck? What the hell? (laughs) 
<laughs> oh my god, it was so good. It was, that was that was so good. Yeah, a lot of the character stuff in this show, like I said, after they got through with their episode or two of Everyone Hates Each Other, a lot of the character stuff was so good. It's So I'm left to conclude that it's the plot that's putting me off. Hopefully they fix that in season two. Yes. Is there anything else to cover on this show? I mean, we can go into like more minor so. things. No, I think we're good. Like, at the end, they said Burnham's record was expunged and that she got a pardon, and those are two very different things. <laughs> I, sure, I guess. <laughs> also, it was very convenient that everyone getting an award at the end was one of the bridge characters who we recognized. Like, did they give everyone on the Discovery an award for mutinying against Cornwell? Uh, not the Doctor. They gave one to the deceased assistant yeah. doctor. Yeah. And then they gave one to, you know, the random communications dude and Detmer the helmsman and the random tactical guy, but, like, not anyone else who we hadn't seen before. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was convenient that, like, every face we recognized was there getting an award and no face we didn't recognize. Yeah, the show didn't have a lot of extras. Like, every time they go down to engineering, it's Stamets and Tilly, and that's it. Basically, yeah. You know, all they had was just background people in hallways and in that party in the mud episode. Oh, the party. The party, you know... Tilly is kind of a party animal for somebody with social anxiety. Well, you know, get a couple of drinks in her and she'll let loose. You know, she she becomes all, all, all sorts of sociable and everything when she doesn't have to worry about her allergies cropping up, I guess. Uh, you know, or, or, or maybe it's Wyclef Jean and she just really digs him. You know, this is, this is a Star Trek show that's going to have people listening to Wyclef Jean at their parties and put Lenny Kravitz in their trailers. This is what Star Trek does now. We got Lenny Kravitz, we got the Beastie Boys, you know, we're doing this all the time now. Well, you want to talk about the music? Well, other than Wyclef Jean, (laughs) um, (laughs) I hoped for so much more from the music. I did. It sounds so much better in the show. And I don't know if that's a good thing. I mean, I guess it's a good thing, because ultimately it works in the show, but God, the CDs are so empty. There's very little content. It sounds... Plus, you've got 15 hours, or maybe not 15 hours, because they're not all 60-minute episodes, but you've got like 12 hours of television, and there's a grand total of 90 minutes spread across two CDs of the music. And yet, even with those rigorous selections... Yeah, and it's still, there's, it's, it's nothing. It's just so nothing. A lot of it sounds like the worst of the Rick Berman era music when they wanted it to be entirely bland wallpaper. Like, I remember scenes having decent music, but then I go listen to it on the CD and it just sounds empty. Yeah. Which, I don't know how to judge that. I mean, it's god-awful to try to listen to as a musical experience, but I mean, it worked in the show, I guess? I had such a better impression of it from the show, so I mean, I guess it did its job? I suppose, I don't know. It was very unimpressive. I hoped for more. You know, when they're doing a new Star Trek show, in this age of prestige TV, and you know, there are a lot of TV shows now getting some really good music. I mean, I realize most of that is done by Bear McCreary, who does about 17 TV shows, but... (laughs) I'm just disappointed. Yeah, it was... 
I was really hoping for something good. And from just watching the show, it sounded like there may be good stuff in there, but then just listening to the CDs, there's just nothing. Yeah, very disappointing. Um, I know there were a bunch of composers who did uh, demos for the show, and Cliff Eidelman, who scored Star Trek VI, actually put his out as an iTunes album, and it's not much either, frankly. I mean, I guess it's fine, but... I mean, I like the main theme. The main theme is the only decent track in the thing. The only other tracks that are really any good are the ones that ape the main theme to some extent. Like, even scenes you'd think would have, like, really good big dramatic music, you just listen to the CD and it, they just don't. Like, that Sarush speech should have some really stirring music behind it. And that yeah. track is just bland. Yeah, and you'd think you could get something a little more active into a Star Trek show these days, but... <sighs> like I said, I was very optimistic after hearing the main theme. But the rest of it is just... Like I said, it's just sort of there. It's sort of empty and nothing distinctive. Like, I spent about the first half of that first CD, like, really listening, like, okay, is there a Burnham theme? Is there a Discovery theme? Is, is there... And, and no, there's nothing. Yeah, that's another thing about these, you know, intensely serialized stories, is they could benefit so much from dense thematic music as well. Yeah. You know, if there was something stirring for Burnham or, or Saru or even the Klingons... Even my memory, I don't know if my memory's playing tricks on me or if they're just incredibly bad at choosing tracks for the CDs, but, like, I remember some really big Klingon music in some of those Klingon scenes. I remember, like, a big sort of fanfare-type thing for the Terran Empire when Giorgio shows up as Emperor. I remember some, like, big musical moments in the show, but none of them are to be found anywhere on the CD. And I don't know if that's just my mind playing tricks on me, or it sounded better in the show with, like, effects, and when I was paying attention to the story and not the music, or if they just were astonishingly bad at choosing what music to put on the CD. You know, there there are different tastes that, that go into producing a, a compilation of stuff from a show, so maybe someone liked the more ambient stuff, uh, which does happen sometimes, but I think there is also that effect of the story and and, and the dialogue and, and everything that can make the music seem a little more distinctive in your memory. But yeah, it's pretty disappointing all around. You know, there might be something to that, because I tried to listen to these tracks again after watching the show, to, like, just sort of see if they're any better with the episodes fresher in my mind. But, like, I couldn't make myself sit through them again, so I was doing other stuff while listening. So, and it was a much more pleasant listening experience when I, like, distracted myself with other stuff. And so I really only noticed the high points. So, like, I noticed the ten seconds of fanfare and, like, ignored most of the ambient schlock. And it was a much more pleasant listening experience, but it still leaves me with the impression that there's just nothing there. And that's a disappointment. On that note, I feel like, despite all the negativity that we've had about this show, I don't actually want to be that negative? I don't know. I'm still not sure it's worse than TNG Season 1, or especially TNG Season 2. Yeah, there are definitely, oh god, a lot of clunkers. I mean, a lot of shows stumble out of the blocks and then sort of, like, figure themselves out. Yeah. And if the way they figure themselves out is the, you know, happy, jokey tone of the Season 2 trailer, I'm okay with that, I guess. Yeah, hopefully. We'll see. I mean, like I said, I like 
Burnham, and I like Saru, and I like Stamets, and I like Tilly, and I even liked Lorca. So there's a lot of good building blocks they could use there to make a really good show with. Maybe with the two showrunners being fired, maybe the show will improve. I know fandom loves to hate Alex Kurtzman, but I really liked all the reboot movies, so, you know. Well, like it or not, I think Alex Kurtzman is our guy for Star Trek, at least on TV, going forward, because he has his whole new deal with CBS. He's developing all their shows. Is there any information on any of that, or just that it's going to exist, theoretically? Uh, just rumors on what it's going to look like. Someone asked him some questions about it at Comic-Con recently, and all he basically said was whenever someone asked about a particular idea or a particular rumor, all he would really say is, you know, there are conversations, we're having conversations, we're getting ideas together. You know, he said that when someone asked about the rumors that one of the new shows is going to star Patrick Stewart, and when someone asked about the idea of a new animated show. And when, when someone asked about the show that we know Nick Meyer was working on about Khan. When would that be set? Um, I think it might be uh, during his exile on uh, SETI Alpha 5. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess, I mean, I guess there's potential in almost everything. Yeah, I think Nick Meyer said something about that having been nixed because of the uneasy separation still between CBS and Paramount. Weren't there rumors they were going to remerge? There were rumors. Um, that has not come to fruition yet. Someone on, on one side or the other nixed the offer that was out there, I think. So we'll see if anything else happens with that in the future. But That was always weird. Like, why didn't just one of them own the franchise? That seemed really strange. Especially since the same dude is in charge of both. Or I guess was in charge of one and now is in charge of the other. Yeah, that was a little strange. Meanwhile, they're moving forward in parallel. Now, you know, Star Trek fourteen is is moving along slightly. <laughs> they named a director, but they still don't have, like, a production. Well, the, uh, the, the Skydance production people, I think, are on board now, and they have a script that they're working on, and, you know, there are things happening. The only person who seems to say anything about it is Simon Pegg, for some reason. Is he writing the script again? No. Um, I believe the script for that is being written by the people who wrote the script that got tossed out before they got Simon Pegg to write Beyond. Okay. So... What a tangled web we weave. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so we're going to see how that turns out. There are so many rumors and parallel production streams. Alex Kurtzman is doing new TV shows now, supposedly in the future. They're doing Star Trek fourteen with the Kelvin Universe cast. After Quentin Tarantino is done making his next movie, who knows what he's going to do. Oh, God. That is supposedly still moving forward as well. That could either be, like, some sort of interesting amalgam or a giant garbage fire. Well, I don't know. I just generally figure Tarantino is a abusive piece of shit and we don't need him on Star Trek, but... If he even makes a regardless... Star Trek movie where people use the N-word 140 times, it's going to be very uncomfortable. Oh, my God. We'll see, <laughs> I guess. But yeah, I think I think mostly it's it's that CBS Paramount separation issue that's preventing them from really getting together the Star Trek cinematic universe they probably want. Instead, it'll be there will be some Star Trek movies and there will be the Star Trek CBS All Access universe. 
I don't know, maybe people should be less eager to put together a cinematic universe. It's not like anyone other than Marvel has made that work. I suppose. I mean, the next most successful example I could think of, other than Marvel, is, like, Star Trek in the early 90s with TNG and DS9. With, like, Picard appearing on DS9 and Bashir appearing on Next Generation. That was, that was my next best example. Like, every other attempt in the last ten years has been a giant garbage fire. And on that note, <laughs> as we look forward to the future... <laughs> As always, reflection, surprise, terror for the future. Uh, yes, indeed. And if you, dear listeners, are feeling reflection, terror, or surprise, and you want a little advice on how to deal with it, you can let us know and we will try to help. Uh, the email address for that is spectacularadvice at gmail.com. Please reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Uh, that'll do it for our Discovery Season 1 epic reaction show i guess thank you scott for being with me thank you listeners for listening we will see you next time <laughs>